Well, welcome back. We are in Ephesians today, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 18. So if you have your Bibles, whether that is an actual book or whether you can pull it up on your device, go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 11. We're going to go ahead and read through these seven verses, and then we'll come back and take a closer look at things. Paul writes, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Uh, Last week when we resumed this study, uh, we talked about the place of good works in the Christian life. We said that Paul makes it very clear that we are saved by grace through faith and not by works so that no one is in a position to boast. That's the whole theme of these first eight to ten verses of Ephesians chapter 2. Paul's making it very clear one of the reasons why we have to be saved by grace and it can't be by works is because he says at the beginning we are what in our trespasses and sins? We're dead, that's right. We're not merely sick. We may sing hymns. We're sin sick and sorrow worn. But the reality is, Paul says, in terms of our spiritual relationship with God, we are dead. Dead in our trespasses and in our sins. And you could preach to dead people all day long, but they simply cannot respond. They're never going to come to that altar call, no matter how hard you preach to them, because they're dead. And that's the way Paul depicts us here. And we also said that even if we were spiritually alive but still sick, the Scripture is very clear, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, even if we were merely sick and not even dead, even if it wasn't as bad as all that, we still would not have enough righteousness to balance the scale of God's justice. We simply don't have enough because what God requires is absolute perfection. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And so it has to be by grace. That's Paul's point. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And yet we looked at verse 10, which we said is in many respects the most ignored verse in the entire book that we have been saved from something, it is true, from sin and death and wrath, but we have also been what? Saved for something, for good works. So it's not a case where we are simply saved by grace and therefore we can go ahead and live like hell. No, we are saved by grace and saved for a purpose. And what is that purpose? For good works. That God might put us on display for His glory and for His honor. So we said last week that that there is a place for good works in the Christian life. St. Augustine put it this way. You've seen this before. 
Augustine said that before the fall, mankind was passe pecare, able to sin. Adam and Eve were capable of sinning. They had been given free will, but they had not yet sinned. But after they ate of the tree, they became what? Non passe, non pecare, not able not to sin. And we've all experienced that. The very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things that I do. Oh, wretched man or woman that I am, who will deliver me? Paul says, but Jesus Christ did come, and he did deliver us. And by the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, and we said this too, that along with justification, there is always regeneration. We can't forget that. The only reason we're able to do the good works is because of the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, by virtue of the fact that we have been reborn, born again, born from above, we are now posse non pecari, able not to sin. Doesn't mean that we won't, but it now means that we have a supernatural power that dwells within us that gives us the wherewithal not to sin. And one day, in glory, when we are in the presence of the Lord, when we are made like unto him, we will be non posse pecari, not able to sin. We're not there yet. You're in one of two places if you're a human being. You're either there in that second position, non posse, non pecari, not able not to sin, or by the grace and mercy of God, not by virtue of your own works so that you cannot boast, you have been transferred to that third position where you are able not to sin. Again, doesn't mean that you won't. Martin Luther described us as simul ustus et peccator, at the same time sinners and yet justified. But it does mean that we have the power now to lead a new life. We are new creations. And so we have been saved for something. We have been saved from sin. We've been delivered from sin, from its power, from its, its control over us. And one day we will be delivered from its presence. So with justification, there always comes regeneration. And with regeneration, there always comes fruit. And that's the place of good works in the Christian life. The good works don't save us, but they are the fruit. They are the consequence. They are the result of being united to Christ. He begins to work in us to produce in us fruit. And we said last week that if a tree is healthy, it doesn't have to work at producing fruit. An apple tree, if it's healthy, is going to do that because it's a tree and it's healthy. An orange tree, if it's healthy, is going to produce fruit. If you go out and you buy an apple tree and you plant it in your back garden with the hope that it's going to produce fruit and it doesn't produce fruit, what's it good for? It's not a particularly good shade tree. You do what with it? You chop it down, you get rid of it. But if it's healthy, it's going to produce fruit. And if you and I are living in fellowship with Jesus Christ, we will produce fruit. Now, what is the fruit? Well, Paul describes the fruit elsewhere. It's the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, the fruit of the Spirit. That's what God produces. We have to be careful when we talk about being created for good works. What is being referred to here in terms of good works is not just those works that are pleasing to society. It's those good works which are pleasing to God. What is the fruit of the Spirit? It is Christ-likeness. You can take all of those different things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, all of those things, but if you just want to simplify it, 
What is that? It is Christ-like character. Jesus Christ was the only one who personified all of those things. And so it is God's will to save us by grace, through faith, not by works so that no man may boast, but for good works, for Christ-likeness, that people in coming to see us and coming to know us may come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. And that is how God is glorified. That's how he's glorified. So there is a place for good works in the Christian life. And one of the good works that Paul refers to here in Ephesians chapter 2 that you and I should be engaged in is the good work of peacemaking. That's what these verses that we read just a moment about or uh, a moment ago are really all about. Listen to the way Paul puts it. He says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now, Paul speaks here of conflict, of warfare, And he's saying what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ by his death upon the cross is he's put an end to the hostility. He's made peace. And as the followers of Jesus Christ, it is our responsibility, our privilege, to be peacemakers. Jesus made that point very clear in the Sermon on the Mount, didn't he? He said, blessed are the peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, first of all, when Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, what he's really talking about is peace with God. We'll get to that in a minute. But it also means peace with one another. And that means that this is one of the fruits, if this is Christ-likeness, if this is one of the good works that you and I have been saved for, then we have plenty of opportunity in the world in which we live. Because if there is one thing that perhaps more than any other that has characterized the human condition, it is conflict. It is warfare. From the earliest days of recorded history, people have been in conflict with each other. From the gap at Thermopylae to the Jewish-Roman wars in the Holy City, from the battlefield at Waterloo to the fields at Gettysburg to Flanders Fields, Pearl Harbor, to Afghanistan. And what I'm about to put on there, on the screen next, is not a political statement. It's just a statement of fact. From Pearl Harbor to Afghanistan to Capitol Hill. We are a people. We are a country. We are a race that is in conflict with itself. of all these battles, of all these wars, of all these skirmishes, of all the carnage, nothing compares. And if the truth be known, all of these result from the great war that mankind has waged against God. A war which saw its greatest evil perpetrated by the death of Jesus Christ, by evil, wicked human beings, people like you and me. That is the world in which you and I live. That's the air we breathe. There's never been a time when any of us lived when there was not that kind of conflict in the world. And it all results, as we can see, from war with God. When Paul describes the barrier that exists between man and God, he describes it not merely as a dividing wall, 
If you're here on Rally Sunday, you heard me preach about this very text. He describes it not merely as a dividing wall. You can have dividing walls. Some of you have dividing walls. You can have a hedgerow. You can have a picket fence. Paul doesn't describe the barrier between God and man as a dividing wall. He describes it as a dividing wall of what? Hostility. That is to say we are in active opposition to God. We are in conflict with God. This is why every Sunday when we say the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Why is it? Because we have trespassed on another's property, you see. That's the great sin of Eden. The sin of Eden was not that man and the woman decided to eat from the fruit of a tree. The sin of Eden was that they ate of the fruit of the tree that they might be like God. That's the desire of the human heart, you see. We want to be the masters of our own fate, the captains of our own destiny. We want to kick God off the throne and put ourselves on it. And in so doing, we declare war on God. And the really tragic part about all of this conflict, this warfare, is that it creates barriers. That's what Paul is talking about here. He says, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh. Remember that you were at one time what? Separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, without hope, without God in the world. You were distant, removed. There was a barrier. We see this in our own world, don't we? We see all kinds of barriers that wars produce. The Berlin Wall, the Korean DMZ, the West Bank barrier in Israel. All of the barriers, the physical barriers that you and I erect, and why is it? Because we are in conflict. But the greatest barrier, again, Paul says, is the barrier between God and man, expulsion from paradise and separation. If you were here on Rally Sunday, I uh, mentioned uh, an old movie. I love old movies. I don't know about you. I rarely find anything worth going to the movies to see today. I just don't. But I love old movies. And how many of you remember that old movie from the 1970s starring Robert Redford and Barbara Streisand called The Way We Were? How many of you remember that movie? It's a story about a young couple who fell in love and they were very different. He came from a very affluent and conservative background, and Barbara Streisand, well, she played Barbara Streisand. Um, and uh, she was very radical and liberal and all of that sort of thing. At any rate, they fall in love, and uh, they start their life together, but as time goes by, they sort of drift apart, and uh, they lose touch, and they break off the relationship. But there comes a point in the movie where they are looking back with wistful, nostalgic longing for the good old days, for the way they were. Well, Paul gives us a picture here of the way we were, and it is not a pretty picture. What does he say? He says, remember that you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember that you were, look at how he paints it. What a depressing picture. You are separated from Christ. Now, when Paul says, you Gentiles, he's talking about us. He's talking about you and me. So, if you want to, read this text and just switch it up a little bit. It'll be just as accurate. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Charlestonians in the flesh, or you St. Philippians, 
or you Americans, whatever you want, put it in there. But at one time, you were what? Separated from Christ. That is to say, you were separated from the anointed one. You were alienated from God himself. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. There are few things that are more painful for a human being than to be excluded. You ever been in a, in a context, in a situation, whether it's a cocktail party or whatever it is, where people exclude you from the conversation? It is a painful thing. The most painful thing for children when they go off to school is what? To be excluded from a particular clique or group. That's because we human beings were created to be in fellowship with one another. I've told you before, cats were created to be solitary creatures, but human beings were not. The worst punishment that you can inflict upon a prisoner is to place him in what? Solitary confinement. We were not created for that. And so to be isolated, to be separated, my goodness, what a terrible thing. It's about the worst thing that can happen to a person. And Paul says that was our spiritual condition. We were separate from Christ and we were excluded from the club. We were excluded from Israel, which means we were excluded from God's holy people. We were foreigners to the covenants and the promise, the good news, the message of God's love for his people. And as a result of being separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, we were, therefore, he says, without hope. I think that's probably the worst expression in the language, hopeless. There's one very much akin to it. When I was a a child, I think I mentioned this in a sermon a couple of years ago here at St. Philip's. When I was a little boy, uh, my father, um, he was a hot-tempered individual. Uh, He had a short wick. And on one occasion, um, he was working. It was a very hot summer day, and it can get hot, believe it or not, in Pennsylvania in the summertime. It was a very hot day, and we had a wrought iron railing going up to our house, and uh, a portion of it had broken free, and so my dad was working on it. Now, my dad was an academic. He was not a handyman. And so things were not going well, and uh, I could tell he was frustrated. And like all little boys, I was just standing right there by his side, hoping to be of some assistance, some help. And sweat's just rolling down his face, and he turns to me, and he goes, "Ah." go to my tool chest, and and he said, uh, go and get me a Phillips head screwdriver, and be quick about it. And so I took off, and I ran to the tool shed. I could tell he was ready to go, so I grabbed a screwdriver, and I ran back, and I handed it to my dad. By this point, he had managed to cut his hand on that wrought iron, and he was like a bomb. And I handed the screwdriver, he snatched it out of my hand, and he was just about to use it, and he looked, and it was a flathead screwdriver. And he let me have it. And he turned to me, and he said something that it was years ago, but I've never forgotten it. In fact, when I, when I think about it, even today, it's one of those things that just sort of, the knife. He said, you are just useless. And he threw down the screwdriver and went and got it himself. Now, of course... The reality was, he'd never taught me what a Phillips head screwdriver was, so I didn't know the difference. But it's interesting how those words hurt, how those words still hurt. Paul says it's even worse for us. We're not just useless, we're hopeless. 
That's got to be the worst thing in the world to say about anybody. But Paul says that's the way we were. We were hopeless. We were without God in the world. What a terrible place to be. But now. Those are probably the two most wonderful words in this entire epistle. But now. But now what? But now you who were far off have been brought near. You were separated, you were alienated, but now you've been brought near. Once you were excluded from citizenship in Israel, now you have been made fellow citizens with all the rights, honors, and privileges thereunto pertaining. We pointed out that in the ancient world, it was possible under Roman law for a person to actually disinherit their natural children. But that if you adopted a child, because you had done that freely, you could not disinherit an adopted child. Isn't that interesting? You could disinherit your natural children, so there's still hope for some of you if you're thinking about this. But <laughs> when it comes to adoption, adoption, you cannot disinherit an adopted child. And we pointed out many times before, not only here in Ephesians, but also in John chapter 1, that what? You and I, by virtue of our inclusion within the human race, are not automatically children of God. Now, that's the way the culture speaks. Well, we're all God's children. That is not biblical language. You and I are all creatures of God, but we only become children of God by grace, by adoption. He gave those who believed in him the right to become the children of God. And the good news is that having been adopted, you and I can never be disinherited. Once we who were excluded... Having been brought near, we can never be pushed away again. What a marvelous message that is. But now, you who were far off have been brought near. You who were not citizens have been made citizens. You who were foreigners to the covenants and the promises. You who were without hope. You who were without God. Now you have been made members of God's household. Sons and daughters of the Most High. Listen, if you ever struggle with self-esteem, and many people do. I've got teenagers living in my house, and they struggle with this like you wouldn't believe. But if you ever struggle with self-esteem, this is the best antidote for it. The realization that you who were far off have been brought near. You who were excluded, you are now included. You who are without hope and without God in the world, you are now a child, a son or daughter of the Most High King. And you will never be disinherited. He will be with you always, even to the end of the age. That's what we were. That is what we are now. How has this happened? Paul makes it very clear how it has happened. God has made peace with us. God has made peace with us. Listen again to verses 13 and following. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. God makes peace with us. Now here's a question. When two parties are in conflict, whether that's two nations at war with each other or family members at war with each other, who generally makes peace? Well, the answer is up there on the screen. It's one of two parties. Either those who provoked the conflict in the first place, realizing the error of their way, come and apologize and seek to make peace, or the person who realizes, or the country or the nation, whatever it is that is in conflict, realizing that they are going to lose the war, generally approaches the stronger party and sues for peace. A great illustration of this is Japan during World War II. Both of those conditions applied to Japan in World War II. They started the conflict by an unprovoked attack upon Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. And by 1945, it was quite clear to the Japanese, especially after we had employed two atomic bombs at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, that they were not going to win the war. And so they did what? They sued for peace. They sued for peace, but there was a great cost that went along with the peace. A number of things happened to them. One, of course, was that we occupied Japan. Douglas MacArthur became, for all intents and purposes, the new leader of the nation. The second thing was a tremendous blow to Japanese pride. Now, the Japanese were a very proud people. They had an ancient history, and their emperor was regarded as a divinity. But he had to declare to his people that he was no longer divine. That was a tremendous blow to Japanese pride. So in order to have peace, the party that had provoked the conflict and the party that was in danger of losing had to pay a heavy price. Well, here we are at war with God. We've declared war on God. We can't win that war. And yet we do not go and seek to make peace with the Lord, do we? So if we're going to have peace with God and God is the injured party, and we're going to lose the war, we should be the ones. But what can we bring? <laughs> what, what can we bring? What, what price can we pay? What reparations can we make in terms of our conflict with God? There's nothing. What, what, what can you and I give to a sovereign creator who calls things into existence by the sheer power of his name, ex nihilo, what can you and I possibly offer to God that should make him have peace with us? What is it that you and I can offer that God can't get for himself? Nothing. And yet this is the marvelous message of the gospel. God who is the injured party, God who is the stronger party, comes to make peace with us. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ comes for the express purpose of what? Tearing down 
the dividing wall of hostility. He puts an end to the conflict, first of all, by Jesus' blood shed upon the cross, a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. You ever heard those words before? That's what that's all about. And then, having done that, having made peace by his shed blood, a peace offering, he tears down the dividing wall, which separates us and makes it possible for us to have access. Keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn to the Gospel of Matthew for just a moment. There's a powerful illustration of this. I'm sure you're very familiar with it. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45. It's Good Friday. Jesus is hanging upon the cross. And we read this. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, the man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. I rather suspect that when the Apostle Paul wrote the epistle to the Ephesians, and we believe that he wrote this from Rome where he was imprisoned, this is what he was thinking about. The dividing wall between God and man and the dividing walls between men and other men. Now, why do I say Paul was probably thinking about this very thing? Because, as I said, Paul was writing this epistle from Rome. Why was he in Rome? He was in Rome because he got arrested in Jerusalem for trespassing. The charge that was brought against Paul was that when he was in Jerusalem, he had brought a Gentile into the temple precincts, which was against the law. And he was arrested. And ultimately, he was imprisoned and then sent off because he appealed as a citizen to Rome. The temple in Jerusalem was a magnificent building up there on the Temple Mount. Uh, extraordinary, one of the wonders of the ancient world, made of polished stone. Uh, it glistened in the sunlight when you looked at it. Uh, people would travel from all around just to catch a glimpse of this second temple, the Temple of Herod that he had built to replace the, the earlier temple. It was surrounded by a series of concentric courts for the most part. Uh, the outer court was what was known as the court of the Gentiles. Uh, that's where the Gentiles were allowed to go. That's all the further they were allowed to go. It was way down at street level. Uh, those of you who've been to the Holy Land and you've been there to the Wailing Wall, that's basically the court of the Gentiles. That's as far as they were permitted to go. It was there that the money changers were engaging in all of their business and transacting the, the changing of the currency and so forth. All of that was taking place in the court of the Gentiles. Then you had to go up about 17 steps until you entered another court, which was called the Court of the Women. That was as far as the Jewish women were permitted to go. Beyond that, then, there was another court. It was called the Court of Israel. It was a, an inner court, and that's as far as the men were allowed to go. And beyond that, there was another court, even further in, and this was the Court of the Priests, and that's as far as the priests were allowed to go. 
But then there was a smaller area, the most sacred part of the temple. It was called the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could go there once a day on the Day of Atonement, and he could only go after he had made sacrifice for his own sin and for the sin of his family. And there, separating the holy place from the Holy of Holies was this huge curtain, six inches thick. Can you imagine how much that weighed of the most costly material? And it separated. It was supposed to symbolize the separation between a holy and righteous God and a sinful and fallen humanity. Only the high priest could go in there, and as I said, only once a year, and he did that to do what? To make atonement, to make up for the sins of the people. Everybody else, you see, was out. And the further out you went, the more separated you were from God. The Gentiles were way on the outside. There used to be signs out there that basically said, trespassers will be not prosecuted, but executed. That's the picture you see of the human race. And what God does by his death on his cross is that he tears that dividing wall, that, that curtain. When Jesus gave up his dying breath, that curtain was torn in two, and sinful humanity suddenly had access to the Holy of Holies. That's what God has done for you and for me. And Paul is saying, if God has made peace with us, then it only stands to reason that you and I should go out and do what? Make peace with one another. For that which unites us is far greater than anything which divides us. That's how Paul describes your ministry and mine in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, ours is a ministry of reconciliation. Having been reconciled to God, we are now called to go forth and be reconciled with one another. He says, we are Christ's ambassadors. What does it mean to be an ambassador? It means to be a representative of a nation or of a sovereign. You are empowered with all of their authority when you go out. You act on their behalf when you make a treaty. You and I are Christ's ambassadors, and he has given us the ministry that was the ministry of Jesus Christ, which is a ministry of reconciliation. We are to reconcile the world to God. And we are to be reconciled one to another. This is why God saves us, folks. He doesn't save us because we're nice people. We're not nice people. We're broken, fallen sinners. God loves us in spite of the fact that we're not good people. That's the, that's the glory of the gospel. We declare war on him. He comes and makes peace with us. We have nothing to offer him. He pays the price himself. And then he gives us this ministry of reconciliation whereby we are to reconcile others to him. This is why, incidentally, we pass the peace in church. Now, I know that, that, that there was a time when some people were uncomfortable with passing of the peace in the church. But I want you to understand, it's an ancient tradition, and it comes from this very notion. And I want you to notice the placement of the passing of the peace in church. Did you ever notice that it always follows the confession of sin and it always precedes going to the altar rail? Because we are supposed to have peace with God so we confess our sins and receive the absolution. Then, as a sign of the fact that we have peace with God, we greet each other 
as a sign of reconciliation that we now have peace with one another. And it's only when we have peace with God and peace with one another can we then go to the holy rail and receive the bread of heaven. See, you have to be reconciled one to another as well as to God before you can go and receive that most blessed bread and wine. That's our ministry. That's our calling. We have been saved by grace through faith, not by works, but we are God's workmanship created in Him for good works. And the good works, at least one of those good works, is the message of reconciliation. Now, what does that look like? Keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn to the book of Acts for just a minute. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13 is a turning point in the in the Christian narrative. Uh, up to this point in the book of Acts, Christians share their faith, but only as the opportunities present themselves. For the most part, the believers were reactionary. If an opportunity presented itself to preach the gospel, they preached the gospel. But they didn't go out looking for opportunities. When you get to Acts chapter 13, everything changes. Now, this is really the beginning of what I call the missionary era. This is the fulfillment of what Christ had spoken in the first chapter of Acts. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It begins to happen here in Acts chapter 13. This is where we're told the church laid its hands on Paul and Barnabas and sent them off, and they changed the world, and here we are today as a consequence. But this church in Acts chapter 13 was remarkable. You have to ask yourself, what kind of a church changes the world? Because that's what this church did. There's a great deal that we can learn just by reading the first three verses. We're told now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, in order to understand the importance of what happens here, you have to understand that the first century world was a deeply divided society. How many of you are Jane Austen fans? Jane Austen's books are all about what? Class. They're all about divisions. Pride and prejudice is all about class divisions. Well, let me tell you, 19th century, early 19th century Britain was nothing compared to first century. Jerusalem or, or the Greco-Roman culture. People were divided from people on every line imaginable. Uh, the Romans hated the Greeks because they thought the Greeks were has-beens. The Greeks hated the Romans because they thought the Romans were upstarts and boorish. It's true. Jews despised everybody because they pretty much felt that they were separate, called out to be different. And so there were these fault lines that existed. The rich hated the poor, the poor resented the rich, all these fault lines, and they are fault lines that have been in existence for centuries. And yet when you read here in Acts chapter 13, this church that God chose to change the world, you learn something quite remarkable about it. We're told that in that church there were teachers and preachers, and then we get a list, and we get a list of the names, and the names are remarkable. The first one is Barnabas. Who is Barnabas? Barnabas was a son of encouragement, that's what he was known. His real name was Joseph. He was a Levite from the Isle of Cyprus. He was a Jew, but he was not a Jew of Jerusalem. Now, Charlestonians understand how this works. 
He was from off. <laughs> All right, so that's what he is. He's a Jew, but he's a Jew from off. And he's working alongside this fellow named Simeon, who was called Niger. Now, what does the word Niger mean? Black. So what we've got here is a white Jew, or a Semite, who's working alongside a black man. Well, that was extraordinary in the first century. That sort of thing never happened. The next person that's mentioned is Lucius of Cyrene. Lucius is a Latin name. So even if he's a Jew, he is a Jew that has pretty much been raised in a Greek culture. Probably he's not, though. He may very well be a Gentile because his name is Latin. Then we're told there was Menaean, a member of the court of Herod the Tetrarch. Well, that's the ruling family. That long dynasty of the Herods, that notorious family. This man had been raised in the court of Herod the Tetrarch. So this man is of the upper class. You've got people that are Jewish working alongside Gentiles. You've got blacks working alongside whites. You've got people of high estate working along people of low estate. And then to top it all off, there's this guy who's had this radical conversion experience, this Jesus freak, probably from Berkeley, California, named Saul of Tarsus. <laughs> now what a group! That is a motley crew. How was it that they could all work together? They could all work together, you see, because that which united them was far greater than anything that divided them. And God laid his hand upon that church, and that church went out and changed the world, and we've never been the same again. And that's what heaven's going to be like. Heaven is going to be a picture of people from every race, language, nation, people under heaven who, having been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ, are now reconciled one to another to the glory of God the Father. Well, if that's what heaven is going to be like, why don't we as Christians start bringing a little bit of heaven right here to earth, right here to our community. You are Christ's ambassadors. You have been saved at countless cost. You've been saved from something, but you have been saved for something, to tear down the dividing walls of hostility. Let's pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for the ministry of reconciliation. We declared war on you, but in your mercy, you came and you made peace with us at great price, the price of your son's own shed blood. Having given us this ministry of reconciliation, grant that we may go out and be Christ-like to those around us, introducing them to Jesus Christ, that they might be reconciled to the Father of all. And then, being reconciled to us, may show forth your glory in the world. This we ask that St. Philip's might be a church like that in Antioch, a church which changes the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.